This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Home is the Hunter by Henry Cutner and C.L. Moore. It's read for us by Pat Bottino. It was first published in the July 1953 issue of Galaxy Science Fiction. Stick around for our discussion of it after the story ends. Home is the Hunter by C.L. Moore and Henry Cutner. Incentives change constantly, but one thing never does, the idea that they are permanent. There is nobody I can talk to except myself. I stand here at the head of the great waterfall of marble steps dropping into the reception hall below, and all my wives and all their jewels are waiting, for this is a hunter's triumph, my triumph. Honest Roger Bellamy, Hunter. The light glitters on the glass cases down there with the hundreds of dried heads that I have taken in fair combat, and I'm one of the most powerful men in New York. The heads make me powerful. But there's nobody I can talk to except myself. Inside me, listening, Is there another honest Roger Bellamy? I don't know. Maybe he's the only real part of me. I go along the best I can, and it doesn't do any good. Maybe the Bellamy inside of me doesn't like what I do, but I have to do it. I can't stop, for I was born a hunter. It's a great heritage to be born to. Who doesn't envy me? Who wouldn't change with me if they could? But knowing that doesn't help at all. I'm no good. Listen to me, Bellamy. Listen to me if you're there at all, deep inside my head. You've got to listen. You've got to understand. You there, inside the skull. You can turn up in a glass case in some other hunter's reception hall any day now. Any day with the crowds of populi outside pressing against the view windows and the guests coming in to see and envy and all the wives standing by in satin and jewels. Maybe you don't understand, Bellamy. You should feel fine now. It must be that you don't know this real world I have to go on living in. A hundred years ago, or a thousand, it might have been different, but this is the twenty-first century. It's today, it's now, and there's no turning back. I don't think you understand. You see, there isn't any choice. Either you end up in another hunter's glass case, along with your whole collection of heads, while your wives and children are turned out to be populi, or else... You die naturally. Suicide is one way. And your eldest son inherits your collection. And you become immortal in a plastic monument. You stand forever in transparent plastic on a pedestal along the edge of Central Park. Like Renway and Old Falconer and Brennan 
and all the others. Everyone remembers and admires and envies you. Will you keep on thinking then, Bellamy, inside the plastic? Will I? Falconer was a great hunter. He never slowed down, and he lived to be fifty-two. For a hunter that is a great old age. There are stories that he killed himself. I don't know. The wonder is that he kept his head on his shoulders for fifty-two years. The competition is growing harder, and there are more and more younger men these days. Listen to me, Bellamy, the Bellamy within. Have you ever really understood? Do you still think this is the wonderful young time, the boyhood time, when life is easy? Were you ever with me in the long, merciless years while my body and mind learned to be a hunter? I'm still young and strong. My training has never stopped, but the early years were the hardest. Before then, there was the wonderful time. It lasted for six years only. Six years of happiness and warmth with my mother in the harem, and the foster mothers and the other children. My father was very kind then, but when I was six, it stopped. They shouldn't have taught us love at all if it had to end so soon. Is it that you remember, Bellamy within? If it is, it can never come back. You know that. Surely you know it. The roots of the training were obedience and discipline. My father was not kind any more. I did not see my mother often, and when I did, she was changed too. Still, there was praise. There were the parades when the populi cheered me and my father. He and the trainers praised me when I showed I had special skill in the duel or in marksmanship or judo stalking. It was forbidden, but my brothers and I sometimes tried to kill each other. The trainers watched us carefully. I was not the heir then, but I became the heir when my elder brother's neck was broken in a judo fall. It seemed an accident, but of course it wasn't. And then I had to be more careful than ever. I had to become very skillful. All that time, all that painful time learning to kill, it was natural. They kept telling us how natural it was. We had to learn, and there could only be one heir. We lived under a cloud of fear even then. If my father's head had been taken, we would all have been turned out of the mansion. Oh, we wouldn't have gone hungry or unsheltered, not in this age of science. But not to be a hunter, not to become immortal, in a plastic monument standing by Central Park. Sometimes I dream that I am one of the populi. It seems strange, but in the dream I am hungry, and that is impossible. The great power plants supply all that the world needs. Machines synthesize food and build houses and give us all the necessities of life. I could never be one of the populi, but if I were... I would go into a restaurant and take whatever food I wished out of the little glass-fronted compartments. I would eat well, far better than I eat now, as a matter of fact. And yet in my dream I am hungry. 
Perhaps the food I eat does not satisfy you, Bellamy within me. It does not satisfy me, but it is not meant to. It is nutritious. Its taste is unpleasant. But all the necessary proteins and minerals and vitamins are in it to keep my brain and body at their highest pitch. And it should not be pleasant. It is not pleasure that leads a man to immortality in plastic. Pleasure is a weakening and an evil thing. Bellamy within, do you hate me? My life has not been easy. It isn't easy now. The stubborn flesh fights against the immortal future, urging a man to be weak. But if you are weak, how long can you hope to keep your head on your shoulders? The populi sleep with their wives. I have never even kissed any of mine. Is it you who have sent me those dreams? My children? Yes, they are mine. Artificial insemination is the answer. I sleep on a hard bed. Sometimes I wear a hair shirt. I drink only water. My food is tasteless. With the trainers I exercise every day until I am very tired. The life is hard, but in the end we shall stand forever in a plastic monument, you and I, while the world envies and admires. I shall die a hunter, and I shall be immortal. The proof is in the glass cases down there in my reception hall. The heads, the heads, look, Bellamy, so many heads. Stratton, my first, I killed him in Central Park with a machete. This is the scar on my temple that he gave me that night. I learned to be more deft. I had to. Each time I went into Central Park, fear and hate helped me. Often it is dreadful in the park. We go there only at night, and sometimes we stalk for many nights before we take a head. The park is forbidden, you know, to all but hunters. It is our hunting ground. I have been shrewd and cunning and resourceful. I have shown great courage. I have stopped my fears and nursed my hate. There in the park's shadows, listening, waiting, stalking, never knowing when I might feel sharp steel burning through my throat. There are no rules in the park, guns or clubs or knives. Once I was caught in a man-trap, all steel and cables and sharp teeth, but I had moved in time and fast enough, so I kept my right hand free and shot Miller between the eyes when he came to take me. There is Miller's head down in that case. You would never know a bullet had gone through his forehead, for the thenologists are clever, but usually we try not to spoil the heads. What is it that troubles you so, Bellamy, within? I am one of the greatest hunters in New York, but a man must be cunning. He must lay traps and snares a long way in advance, and not only in Central Park. He must keep his spies active, and his lines of contact taught in every mansion in the city. He must know who is powerful and who is not worth taking. What good would it do to win against a hunter with only a dozen heads in his hall, while risking your own collection and your own head? I have hundreds. Until yesterday, I stood ahead of every man in my age group. 
Until yesterday, I was the envy of all I knew, the idol of the populi, the acknowledged master of half New York, half New York. Do you know how much that meant to me, that my rivals loathed me and acknowledged me their better? You do know, Bellamy. It was the breath of life that true Jonathan Hull and good Ben Griswold ground their teeth when they thought of me. And that black Bill Lindman and Whistler Cowles counted their trophies and then called me on the TV phone and begged me with tears of hate and fury in their eyes to meet them in the park and give them the chance they craved. I laughed at them. I laughed Black Bill Lindman into a berserker rage and then almost envied him because I have not been berserker myself for a long while now. I like that wild unloosening of all my awareness but one, the killing instinct, blind and without reason. I could forget even you then, Bellamy, within. But that was yesterday. And yesterday night, good Ben Griswold took a head. Do you remember how we felt when we learned of it, you and I? First I wanted to die, Bellamy. Then I hated Ben, as I have never hated anyone before, and I have known much hate. I would not believe he had done it. I would not believe which head he took. I said it was a mistake that he took a head from the populi. But I knew I lied. No one takes a common head. They have no value. Then I said to myself, It can't be the head of true Jonathan Hull. It can't be. It must not be. For Hull was powerful. His hall held almost as many heads as mine. If Griswold were to have them all, he would be far more powerful than I. The thought was a torment I could not endure. I put on my status cap, with one belt on it for each head I have taken, and I went out to see. It was true, Bellamy. The mansion of Jonathan Hull was being emptied. The mob was surging in and out, while Hull's wives and children were leaving in little quiet groups. The wives did not seem unhappy, but the boys did. The girls had been sent to the populi at birth, naturally. They are worthless. I watched the boys for a while. They were all wretched and angry. One was nearly sixteen, a big agile lad, who must have nearly finished his training. Some day I might meet him in the park. The other boys were all too young. Now that their training had been interrupted, they would never dare enter the park. That, of course is why none of the populi ever become hunters. It takes long years of arduous training to turn a child from a rabbit to a tiger. In Central Park, only the tigers survive. I looked through true Jonathan's view windows. I saw that the glass cases in his reception hall were empty, so it is not a nightmare or a lie. Griswold does have them, I thought, and true Jonathan's besides. I went into a doorway and clenched my fists and beat them against the brownstone and groaned with self-contempt. I was no good at all. I hated myself, and I hated Griswold too. 
Presently, it was only that second hate that remained, so I knew what I had to do. Today, I thought, he stands where I stood yesterday. Desperate men will be talking to him, begging him, challenging him, trying every means they know to get him into the park tonight. But I am crafty. I make my plans far ahead. I have networks that stretch into the mansions of every hunter in the city, crossing their own webs. One of my wives, Nelda, was the key here. Long ago I realized that she was beginning to dislike me. I never knew why, but I fostered that dislike until it became hate. I saw to it that Griswold would learn the story. It is by stratagems like this that I became as powerful as I was then, and will be again, will surely be again. I put on a glove with hair and knuckle lines and nails painted on to look like a hand, and I went to my TV phone and called good Ben Griswold. He came, grinning to the screen. I challenge you, Ben, I said, tonight at nine in the park, by the carousel site. He laughed at me. He was a tall, heavily muscled man with a thick neck. I looked at his throat. Tonight at nine, I repeated. He laughed again. Oh, no, Roger, he said. Why should I risk my head? You're a coward. Certainly I'm a coward, he agreed, still grinning. When there's nothing to gain and everything to lose. Was I a coward last night when I took Hull's head? I've had my eye on him a long time, Roger. I'll admit I was afraid you'd get him first. Why didn't you anyway? It's your head I'm after, Ben. Not tonight, he said. Not for quite a while. I'm not going back to the park for a long time. I'll be too busy. You're out of the running anyhow, Roger. How many heads have you? He knew, damn him, how far ahead of me he was now. I let the hate show in my face. The park... At nine tonight, I yelled, the carousel site, or else I'll know you're afraid. Eat your heart out, Roger, he mocked me. Tonight I lead a parade. Watch me, or don't, but you'll be thinking about me. You can't help that. You swine, you rotten, cowardly swine, he laughed. He derided me. He goaded me as I had done so many times to others. I did not have to pretend anger. I wanted to reach into the screen and sink my fingers in his throat. The furious rage was good to feel. It was very good. I let it build until it seemed high enough. I let him laugh and enjoy it. Then, at last, I did what I had been planning. At the right moment, when it looked convincing, I let myself lose all control, and I smashed my fist into the TV screen. It shattered. Griswold's face flew apart. I liked that. It was very satisfying. The connection was broken, of course, but I knew he would check quickly back. I slipped the protective glove from my right hand and called a servant I knew I could trust. He is a criminal. 
I protect him. If I die, he will die, and he knows it. He bandaged my unharmed right hand, and I told him what to say to the other servants. I knew the word would reach Nelda quickly in the harem, and I knew that Griswold would hear within an hour. I fed my anger. All day in the gymnasium I practiced with my trainers, machete and pistol in my left hand only. I made it seem that I was approaching the berserker stage, the killing madness that overcomes us when we feel we have completely failed. That kind of failure can have one of two results only. Suicide is the other. You risk nothing then, and you know your body will stand by the park in its plastic monument. But sometimes the hate turns outward, and there is no fear left. Then the hunter is berserker, and while this makes him very dangerous, he is also good quarry then. He forgets his cunning. It was dangerous to me, too, for that kind of forgetfulness is very tempting, the next best thing to oblivion itself. Well, I had set the lure for Griswold, but it would take more than a lure to bring him out when he thought he had nothing to gain by such a risk. So I set rumors loose. They were very plausible rumors. I let it be whispered that Black Bill Lindman and Whistler Cowles as desperate as I at Griswold's triumph over us all, had challenged each other to a meeting in the park that night. Only one could come out alive, and that one would be master of New York, so far as our age group counted power. There was, of course, old Murdoch, with his fabulous collection, accumulated over a lifetime, but it was only among ourselves that the rivalry ran so high. With that rumor abroad, I thought Griswold would act. There is no way to check such news. A man seldom announces openly that he is going into the park. It could even be the truth for all I knew. And for all Griswold knew, his supremacy was in deadly peril before he had even enjoyed his triumph. There would be danger, of course, if he went out to defend his victory. Lindman and Cowles are both good hunters. But Griswold, if he did not suspect my trap, had a chance at one sure victory. Myself, honest Roger Bellamy, waiting in berserker fury at a known rendezvous, and with a right hand useless for fighting. Did it seem too obvious? Ah, but you don't know Griswold. When it was dark, I put on my hunting clothes. They are bulletproof, black, close-fitting, but very easy with every motion. I blacked my face and hands. I took gun, knife, and machete with me, the metal treated so that it would not catch or reflect the light. I like a machete especially. I have strong arms. I was careful not to use my bandaged hand at all, even when I thought no one watched me, and I remembered that I must seem on the verge of berserker rage because I knew Griswold's spies would be reporting every motion I made. I went toward Central Park, the entrance nearest the carousel site. That far Griswold's men could track me, but no farther. At the gate I lingered for a moment. Do you remember this, Bellamy within me? Do you remember the plastic monuments we passed on the edge of the park? Falconer and Brennan and the others 
forever immortal, standing proud and godlike in the clear eternal blocks, all passion spent, all fighting done, their glory assured forever. Did you envy them too, Bellamy? I remember how old Falconer's eyes seemed to look through me contemptuously. The number of heads he had taken is engraved on the base of his monument, and he was a very great man. Wait, I thought, I'll stand in plastic too. I'll take more heads than even you, Falconer, and the day that I do, it will be the day I can lay this burden down. Just inside the gate, in the deep shadows, I slipped the bandage from my right hand, and I drew my black knife, and close against the wall I began to work my way rapidly toward the little gate, which is nearest Griswold's mansion. I had, of course, no intention of going anywhere near the carousel site. Griswold would be in a hurry to get to me and out again, and he might not stop to think. Griswold was not a thinker. I gambled on his taking the closest route. I waited, feeling very solitary, and liking the solitude. It was hard to stay angry. The trees whispered in the darkness. The moon was rising from the Atlantic beyond Long Island. I thought of it shining on the sound and on the city. It would rise like this long after I was dead. It would glitter on the plastic of my monument and bathe my face with cold light long after you and I, Bellamy, are at peace. Our long war with each other ended. Then I heard Griswold coming. I tried to empty my mind of everything except killing. It was for this that my body and mind had been trained so painfully ever since I was six years old. I breathed deeply a few times. As always, the deep, shrinking fear tried to rise in me. Fear and something more. Something within me, is it you, Bellamy, that says I do not really want to kill? Then Griswold came into sight and the familiar, hungry hatred made everything all right again. I do not remember very much about the fight. It all seemed to happen within a single timeless interval, though I suppose it went on for quite a long while. It was a hard, fast, skillful fight. We both wore bulletproof clothing, but we were both wounded before we got close enough to try for each other's heads with steel. He favored a saber, which was longer than my machete. Still, it was an even battle. We had to fight fast because the noise might draw other hunters if there were any in the park tonight. But in the end I killed him. I took his head. The moon was not yet clear of the high buildings on the other side of the park, and the night was young. I summoned a taxi. Within minutes I was back in my mansion with my trophy. Before I would let the surgeons treat me, I saw to it that the head was taken to the laboratory for a quick treatment, a very quick preparation, and I sent out orders for a midnight triumph. While I lay on the table and the surgeons washed and dressed my wounds, the news was flashing through the city already. My servants were in Griswold's mansion, transferring his collections to my reception hall, setting up extra cases that would hold all my trophies, all true Jonathan Hulls, and all of Griswold's too. I would be the most powerful man in New York, 
under such masters as old Murdoch and one or two more, all my age group and the one above it would be wild with envy and hate. I thought of Lindman and Cowles and laughed with triumph. I thought I was triumphant then. I stand now at the head of the staircase, looking down at the lights and the brilliance, the row upon row of trophies, my wives in all their jewels. Servants are moving to the great bronze doors to swing them ponderously open. What will be revealed? The throng of guests? The great hunters coming to give homage to a greater hunter? Or suppose no one has come to my triumph after all? The bronze doors are beginning to open, and I'm afraid. The fear that never leaves a hunter except in his last and greatest triumph is with me now. Suppose while I stalked Griswold tonight, some other hunter ambushed even bigger game. What if, for example, someone has taken old Murdoch's head? Then someone else would be having a triumph in New York tonight, a greater triumph than mine. The fear is choking me. I failed. Some other hunter has beaten me. I'm no good. No. Listen. Listen to them shouting my name. Look. Look at them pouring in through the open doors, all the great hunters and their jewel-flashing women thronging in to fill the bright hall beneath me. I feared too soon. I was the only hunter in the park tonight after all, so I have won, and this is my triumph. There's Lindman. There's Cowles. I can read their expressions very, very easily. They can't wait to get me alone tonight and challenge me to a duel in the park. They all raise their arms toward me in salute. They shout my name. I beckon to a servant. He hands me the filled glass that is ready. Now I look down at the hunters of New York. I look down from the height of my triumph, and I raise my glass to them. I drink. Hunters, you cannot rob me now. I shall stand proud in plastic, godlike in the eternal block that holds me, all passion spent, all fighting done, my glory assured forever. The poison works quickly. This is the real triumph. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. Hello, everybody. Hello. Home is the hunter. Now, the, the, awesome. the first thing that strikes me is, um, was this written by Henry Cutner mm. or Henry Cutner and C.L. Moore? Well, uh, the, the one we've got is from the original Galaxy, mm-hmm. um, and that, that's credited to both. But um, the essay in Worlds of Wonder, Robert Silverberg's World of Wonder, uh, subtitled Exploring the Craft of Science Fiction, also known as Science Fiction 101, it was retitled later on, uh, Silverberg says that it was probably written by Cutner. Hmm. Um, and it, and one of the reasons he says that is because in a later, uh, when it was later collected, uh, it only had Cutner's name on it, huh. but they, they were husband and wife, I believe. So, uh, she probably had something to do with it and maybe she wrote it. It's neither of them are around to answer these questions. So mm-hmm. in any case, uh, yes. 
Gotcha. Yeah, she's a famous science fiction writer in her own right. So, um, I, here's something I wanted to uh, say, first of all. You know what I like about this story? What's that? It's, it's really, really, really science fiction. There's no fantasy elements at all. This is 100% science fiction. And it's what they used to call soft science fiction. As in, it was not about one of the hard sciences like physics or chemistry. It's about sociology and psychology. Mm-hmm. And I guess, uh, you know, study of uh, politics and that sort of thing. But it's such a short story, but it gives us a whole world. And I think that's why I like it so much. Other, yeah, and, 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 yeah, I guess Peyton I could Warren. agree with that in that, you know, this is an alien world. You know, in that Silverberg essay, I guess I should yeah. say my first reaction to this story was um, very negative. Hmm. When when I finished it, I was I was like, "What is the point of that?" <laughs> um, that, that was really my thought, but it stuck with me, and I just kept thinking about it. And then um, I read Silverberg's essay, and then I started to appreciate it. Um, so. He he was saying that, um, yeah, this isn't an alien world. You know, this is a world that's not our own. And I had in my head that this was our world because it was taking place in Central Park and everything. It was... Right. I, I, I didn't... It didn't account for me to me... Or it didn't occur to me to think that this person is thinking a lot differently from the way that we nor- we do. But Silverberg was saying this is an alien mindset that we're dealing with here. It's, you know, so it doesn't have a lot to do with our own. Hmm. Well, I would say it is an alien mindset, but only in, uh, I think that it's, it's a very philosophical story too, because it asks questions about like, why do you want things? And, you know, and I think that's why it sticks with me, you know, and that's why it wasn't just throwaway. Because it is a philosophical story, so it gave me a lot to think about. So even though my reaction was negative, I think it's a good story because um, it does make me think a lot. Um, but what what it made me think about, you know, before I got to Silverberg's essay, was the accumulation of things, which became his you know mm. most important thing, and and that's something that um, you know is part of American society. You know, so again, you're taking it to an extreme, but you're yeah. you're uh, you're taking people, not um, things. But the the heads that you're collecting, those are things. You know. Yeah, yeah. And then and, to and get the there's... most stuff, and then to kill yourself before anyone can take that stuff away from you. Yeah. That is the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate gathering of stuff, right? Yeah. 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 So. And... I, 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 one, one of the things that struck me on my last reading, I read this story a dozen times or so over the years, and my most recent reading, the thing that struck me is um, he has a choice, right? He has a choice. He can either uh, end up in someone else's case uh, under glass, or he can end up uh, in Central Park under plastic. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, if it was me, I'd rather be in glass. Glass seems a little more permanent, even though it's more fragile than plastic. <laughs> Um, and if you, th- you know, thinking about it as a consumer consumerism story, um, I mean, he, he thinks he's going to live forever under plastic mm-hmm. in Central Park. And, and I say, yeah, he is going to live for a while. Uh, but even so, you know, 
the people in this society have completely forgotten about our society, I would say, because to get from where uh, we are to where they are is going to take a lot more work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to take a, a quite a change. And I think when he says, I'm going to live under glass forever, immortal, I think what he means is for a while. He just doesn't realize that, you know, immortality is a few hundred years at most, maybe a thousand years if he's mm-hmm. lucky, right? Yeah, and he kept talking to, um, oh, shoot, his name escapes me, um, something within. He's talking to, like... Oh, his, Bellamy within. Yeah, yeah, Bellamy within. So, perhaps I missed it, um, but he, he he was speaking to a part of himself that he thinks is going to continue, right? Uh, that's an interesting interpretation. I, I I thought he was he was trying to convince himself to kill himself. Yeah, and I, I think he was too, but it seemed to me that he was saying, okay, when I'm in plastic, he's going to be dead. But when I'm in the plastic, or when he's in the plastic, he is going to, part of him is going to be alive to enjoy this. <clears throat> Don't you think? And then again, you know, when I read Silverberg's essay, I started to think, okay, well, maybe that's not quite what he's thinking, but because I'm... Um, you know, if he is an alien mindset and this is a different way of thinking, maybe that's not what he's thinking and I need to think about it some more. So, but it seemed to me that that's what he was doing is he was convinced that there's a piece of himself that was going to be in that plastic yeah. and aware. Well, in the same way, this is the philosophical part, right? So in, in the same way that you care about what happens to the world and perhaps your children after you die, you you make plans. You make a will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in one sense, the reason he's doing this is all for posterity, right? It doesn't make a. He doesn't. He's not depressed in the normal sense. He's actually happy, but he's kind of trapped in that he's chosen a lifestyle, or it was thrust upon him, and he's adopted it. That the only value is becoming a. A, a, a man in plastic in Central Park, right? A, mm-hmm. uh, a statue uh, of a great hero in Central Park. And if that is your goal, immortality, uh, even though you it costs you your life, then he's he's really stuck because mm-hmm. he has to kill himself. And he eventually he achieves his victory, which is, I guess, victory over self, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a man against nature story. This is not a man against uh, uh, other men. It's a man against himself kind of story. And yet, we, we, we the reason you you don't like like it originally is because we reject the premise, right? We say, "I'm not going to do that. I I can't identify with a guy who wants to kill himself so he'll stand forever under plastic in Central Park. That makes no sense." <laughs> yeah. Did, did they right. did they explain how this setup comes about? No, it's it's uh, okay. never explained. Yeah, Although yeah. I, I think there's a couple of hints we could we could draw. Should out. we explain what the setup is? If you'd like to, go for it. Um, it's just uh, there's this class of people called hunters that are trained uh, at six years old, and I, I don't know why this is. And then they just uh, try to cut each other's heads off and then the person with the most heads is like the winner <laughs> and uh they get a mansion and they get uh, multiple wives and jewelry and they have a really good life but they, they don't get the jewelry but the wives get the jewelry the wives get the jewelry oh but it's like very stressful they have to always uh 
I guess, look over their shoulder. Mm-hmm. But, but I think they have to accept a challenge in order to yeah. fight. And they always fight in Central Park for some reason. Yeah, and another interesting aspect of it is that it's common knowledge what happens. You know, he, he doesn't oh, yeah. say that it's on television, but everybody in the city knows. So it's yeah, got to be like He's a the TV idol. show. Yeah. Well, if it's not a TV show, it, it, I mean, that's never referenced at all. But mm-hmm. he is the idol of all of New York. He's the most powerful man in New York, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then and then he every once in a while he'll bracket it and say, in my age group, right? Because yeah. there, are, there are other hunters out there who either are older or who are in younger age groups or older age groups. There's at least one guy who's older who has way more heads than everybody else, but he doesn't class himself. And it's kind of like boxing, right? You know, yeah. there's, he's a welterweight or he's a heavyweight or yeah, whatever. Exactly. And, and it's interesting that this isn't happening all over the city. It's happening in Central Park. So um, whoever goes into Central Park is joining in this game. Yeah, it's forbidden right. to everybody who isn't uh, in the game. Exactly. So he's the king of New York, but I, I don't get the impression that he's got any real power. It's just like a, being, you know, Brad Pitt or something. Well, I I, I think I have some answers to some of this. So okay. uh, at the beginning of the story um, in the Galaxy one, which is the one we have here, uh, there's a little, I don't know, prequel or preamble. Uh, that says, I guess probably written by the editor, it says, incentives change constantly, but one thing never does, the idea that they are permanent. And if you wonder why that's the beginning of the story, uh, why that's the introduction, is because it's very deliberately set out that the consequences of not playing the game are not bad in the way we think of them. Um, There's a, a couple of lines here. He says... Uh, we lived under a cloud of fear, even then. If my father's head had been taken, we would all have been turned out of the mansion. Oh, we would not have gone hungry or unsheltered. Not in this age of science. But not to be a hunter? Not to become immortal in a plastic monument? Um, and then, and then he has this dream. He said, or he has these dreams where this really shows us the society, I think, of what's going on outside of his mansion and his mind. Uh, he says, sometimes I have this dream, uh, and I am one of the populi. It seems strange, but in the dream I am hungry, and that is impossible. The great power plants supply all the world needs. Machines synthesize food, build houses, and give us all the necessities of life. So, in this society, scarcity society, there is it's a post scarcity society. Nobody has any want except for him, and all his want is caused by his discipline, not by. I mean, he even punishes himself. He says sometimes he wears a hair shirt, mm-hmm. uh, and a hair shirt is not something you want to put on because it it's itchy, right? Yeah, it's a religious discipline kind of shirt to make you tougher. <laughs> to make you uh, humble, mm-hmm. he he eats crappy food because good food would make him uh, weak, and he doesn't have sex because that would make him weak. He doesn't uh, have any of the pleasures of life. He has no friends. He can't talk to anyone. His whole life is training and discipline, and and that's the exception, right? All of the rest of society is doing just fine. Mm-hmm. Women weak in knees. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, rocky. It's uh pretty stark. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem like a good life. Yeah, so, I mean, are they yeah. saying that, uh, well, this society in which there's no want, are they channeling those tendencies, those human tendencies into this game? And taking the people that maybe still have violent tendencies and throwing them in this arena? Well, they are throwing themselves in the arena, right? Nobody's, nobody's, the only thing he had to do to not be a, uh, a, um, I guess, I guess, yeah, remember, he was not even the firstborn son. He wasn't the heir. Uh, the heir is the one who gets all the heads. That doesn't prevent, like, if you're the second-born son, that doesn't prevent you from being a hunter. It just means you're going to have a much harder go of it because fewer people are going to want to fight you because mm. you've only got your own head, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, but because he was this um, either second or lower-born lower son, uh, he had to kill his own brother. He doesn't actually say that he did it, but he, he implies that he did it. He killed his own older brother um, in an accident, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then uh, he's once you do that, you sort of go say, "Okay, you're really on this path towards uh, your goal," and he's totally adopted it. Mm-hmm. Let me let me uh, give you a couple other things here. Okay, um, the title of the poem comes from uh, sorry, not the poem, the title of the. Uh, story comes from two poems. Um, one is by A.E. Houseman, uh, which is called Home is the Sailor, and it's a very old poem. It goes, Home is the sailor, home from the sea. Her far-born canvas furled, the ship horse shining out of the key, the plunder of the world. Home is the hunter, home from the hill, fast in the boundless snare. All the flesh lies taken at will, at his will, and every fowl of the air. Tis the evening of the moorland free. The starlit wave is still. Home is the sailor from the sea. Um, it's kind of a depressing... Oh, and home is the hunter from the hill. And uh, kind of a depressing poem there. But um, that that's the one that gives the exact title. Uh, the line is the home, from the, home is the hunter. But uh, there's another one, uh, more famous perhaps, by Robert Silver... Uh, not Robert Silver. Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, and it's called Requiem, and it's um, it's actually what's on his gravestone. He wrote it, and uh, they put it on his gravestone. It says, um, Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me die. Glad did I live and glad di- gladly die, and I laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter home from the hill. Interesting. So it's it, the the title is an allusion to death, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and where is the hunter home? <laughs> In the grave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's incredible too. You know, uh, Cutner or Cutner and Moore, whoever wrote it, how. Uh, I mean, this is a short story. I mean, it's not very long at all. Pages, yeah. I mean, it's rich. I mean, there's a yeah, a whole society going on here, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, the first time I listened to it, I, I missed a lot of stuff. Oh yeah, it's only the second time that I really picked everything up. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's not as you know as deep as uh, some of the Philip K. Dick stories we've got, but I think 
there's a lot of interesting things going on in it. Um, yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's plenty deep. Um, you know, it's just not the, I guess there doesn't have the layers of a Philip K. Dick story, but there is one heck of a lot going on here in the background. Um, one, one of the other things that I took note of was, um, was the age. Remember what age he, he, he's, he's, he loses the love of his mother and his father's no longer kind. He had six. Yeah, he loses the eight. He, 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 he's, he's, for six years, he, he was, um, life was wonderful. And then he regrets that he was ever taught love because, uh, after, after that, his life turns to crap, right? He becomes, uh, has to learn obedience and discipline and become skillful at every kind of weapon. Uh, he gets to live in a harem for six years. That's right, with his mo- with his mother and uh, his uh, what was stepmothers and the other children. But mm-hmm. remember, those are all boys, right? Because the girls were turned out into the populi as valueless. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, this reminded me of something that I I guess I learned in uh, one of my ancient history classes. Do you guys have any feelings about this? Does this remind you of anything? Well, I guess popular reminded me of Rome. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh, not uh, Sparta. Okay. You know, um, when the Sparta. I know the Frank Miller uh, book and movie. The uh, somebody's phone is making. Yeah, I I can't find it. I'm looking for it. Um, that's just our house phone. Yeah, somebody got it. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody's clicking. Well, I, too. I don't know. I don't know too much about um, Sparta, but how, uh, how was it like Sparta? Okay. Well, um, in Sparta they had a very uh, <laughs> Spartan lifestyle, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Spartans lived um, in a society of military warriors, right? All the all the men were focused on war. None of them were farmers. And all the women were focused on child raising um, and were also uh, trained um, uh, almost militarily. And the, um, the, they had a very um, harsh system as well. I guess other Greek cities did this as well. But any child who was not uh, perfect of limb and uh, sound in other ways would was turned out into the wilderness um, at birth. Uh, and then for the first seven years of a uh, Spartan boy's life, he lived with his mother um, and uh, separate from his father, although his father would come to visit. And then at the age of seven, uh, male, male Spartans would enter something called the agage system, which is like a, uh, uh, basically a military camp. Uh, they lived in like communal uh, barracks and uh, had group meals that were, you know, served by servants. Um, basically, it's it's very similar to what we're, we're seeing in the story, but also kind of similar to the British uh, public school system, uh, which is really a private school system, but it's called the public school system. And then... Uh, in that school, they were trained to 
uh, learned to read. They were trained to read and write, but more importantly, they were trained in military service, and they were deliberately underfed uh, so that that would encourage them to be sneaky uh, and uh, steal food from the kitchens or other students. <laughs> um, and then uh, they were they were left there in this um, military training school. All of the all of the children, all even the sons of the kings, would be left in this school until the age of eighteen, when uh, they had the option to join a secret society called the Cryptia, which uh, is kind of freaky. Listen to this: the Helots. Those are the people who surrounded uh, Sparta. The Helots were the subjugated people of the Spartans. And were, uh, I think it was yearly, they were culled by the Spartan youth as a part of their training um, in, in the Cryptia. And what they would do is they would take 18-year-old boys and send them out into the woods uh, surrounding Sparta, where they had to forage for themselves um, and were commissioned to, quote-unquote, to kill after dark any of the Spartans' enslaved Greek population of helots whom they could accidentally on purpose come upon so basically they send these kids out in the woods right go out and kill a helot and come back uh and then you'll be uh one of us <laughs> and it's it's pretty creepy but it also reminded me quite a bit of what's going on in this story right it's like the movie 300 that's what i was thinking of and the graphic novel do they have that in the movie um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, there are Spartans. The, the Spartans, okay. Well, the Spartans are, as adults, they're warriors, but also as children, they're warriors. What made them such great warriors is because they, they trained so early and they don't, they don't have, um, they didn't have like a, a separate system for, for, uh, the, the upper class and the lower classes. There they were only the upper classes or the they were only the lower classes. Even the kings fought, right? Mm -hmm. We are Spartans. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to ask you also, what did you guys think? Um, do you think uh, Roger Bellamy is crazy? He sure does talk to himself a lot. <laughs> Indeed. Well, again, yes, I would, I would <clears throat> say that he's crazy. But, you know, it's Silverberg who said, you know, he's thinking with an alien mindset, you know, so maybe he's not. Um, I w he, he asks early on in the story, would you, who wouldn't trade me with me? Who wouldn't envy me? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, me? <laughs> I wouldn't envy you. I wouldn't trade with you. He's mm -hmm. got such a terrible life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really get why they did this stuff in the first place. Uh, why? Just, just out of boredom? Well, why, oh, did the, why the hunting? Why did the Spartans, you know, this rich people who had all these subjugated people under them, why did they treat themselves so badly? Why did they treat themselves as a, you know, a military camp instead of like, you know, a little more, uh, let's have fun with this sort of thing? I guess they had different ideals. Well, they were, they were threatened, weren't they? I mean... They were not living in a stable society. I mean, any time they could get uh, attacked by other tribes, no? 
they basically controlled the entire Peloponnese, the entire okay, so that, south that's not of the reason then. Peninsula. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, but well, the, the, the Egyptians outnumbered them by a really high amount, and they just fought them uh, anyway. The, you're thinking the, um, not the Egyptians, you're thinking the Persians. Okay. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's part of their history too. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I can't speak to that exactly, but think of the individuals in that society. Why did the individuals in that society accept that, you know, this is the way it's going to be? Uh, they don't, it's their culture, I would say. Uh, right. what, what, what I was reminded of in the stories, you know, all the denial the you know you have to work hard and the flesh is weak and you have to be strong and all all that that he's saying to himself it reminded me of the protestant work ethic you know the idea that hard work is is its own reward and um and letting things sit is is something that you shouldn't do idle hands for the devil's workshop exactly mm. like why 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 is this such a great idea again uh, I don't. I I don't necessarily think it's a great idea. What do you guys think? No, not a great idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's no surprise Scott would say Protestant work ethic's not a great idea. But... <laughs> you know, what? I I thought at the end he kind of felt guilty, and that was part of the reason he killed himself. Because he goes like, I feel a little fear that maybe killing is wrong. Somewhere towards uh, the end. I don't think so. I don't think he ever. I don't think he ever. Um, I think he, he he's full of self-doubt. He says, I'm no good, many times right. in the story. Um, his low self-esteem. Well, his self-esteem is entirely tied to how many heads are in his case, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when he gets upset, it's because uh, true Jonathan Hull has more heads than him. Uh, yeah, and, so it's really, I mean, it's not how many heads are in his case, it's how many heads other people have in comparison to him. That's right. That's right. right. And so status is is the the important part, but uh, he's just it's like he's if uh, this is the question I ask my students when I read this story. I say, if you had lived in a society, you could have anything you want. You have they say so. I say, what do you want? And they say, I want a Ferrari, right? And I say, okay, you got your Ferrari. Now what do you want? And they say, I want a big mansion. And I say, okay, you got your big mansion. And they say, I want a lot of money, right? Because money is what can buy you everything else, right? Mm. And I said, well, that's the one thing you can't have. There is no money anymore. There's just a machine that can give you anything you want. Now what do you want? And they say, I want a machine that can make me money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I say, no one else will need this money, right? Because you can get anything you want. Now what do you want? And they go through the list. Of you know the standard things. I want an Xbox. I want all the video games. Right? And I say, okay, you've, you've had all your material goods satisfied. Now what do you want? And then they have nothing to say. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that, that's a really hard question. What do you want? You've got Scott. There's a machine that can give you anything you want. Any object. Mm-hmm. And it's a food. What do you want now? Yeah, you just, I mean, you collect all the stuff that you want, and then what's left? That's right. Yeah. Now, that's what society we're living in, right? Because his wives have jewels and satins, and he has nothing, right? Uh-huh. Not because not because he can't, can't even enjoy it. 
well, if he did enjoy those things, um, he couldn't have the status that he does. So what does he want? He wants status. He wants to be better than everybody. And, and you say, why does he want that? Well, he despises the populi, right? He says the populi suck. I don't want to be a populi. They're just common folk. Mm-hmm. And I, I know Silverberg, he talks about um, this being like an aristocracy. Um, and I guess it is. Uh, only the people who've had training from this young age of six can live in that society. But, you know, can be a hunter because otherwise they'd be killed too quickly in, in Central Park. But there are, there are other things going on. I think there's the wives. Why do they marry these guys? They don't, have, they don't have sex with them. They get to have the children of famous hunters, I guess. That's, that's the, that's the uh, only incentive. And, and remember, he says there's only one guy he can trust, right, other than himself. And that's a, a, a criminal, <laughs> Right, his criminal. There's a criminal that he 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 can trust because if Roger Bellamy dies, then the criminal will be exposed, and therefore the criminal is trustworthy because he protects the criminal. So there's still crime of some kind, mm-hmm. uh, but there's no material want. Everyone is housed. Everyone gets everything they want. What kinds of things would constitute a crime in this society makes you wonder well yeah it's it's just like you know once you have everything you want then what a a person could still commit crimes just the same way that this guy's doing his thing just for status it's very strange uh one one other thing you can ask is uh, after you've asked yourself the question what do i want after i've got everything that i want Mm -hmm. is 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 this question Roger Bellamy thinks he has triumphed, right? He, he says this is the real triumph when he's taken the poison. He's killed himself because he knows he will be forever under, gla- under plastic in Central Park. Uh, what makes... Is he happy? Is he happy at this point or has he always been happy? Is that what... Is, because if we go back to the what the, what the Greeks say, Aristotle's... Uh, uh, not actually quoted as saying this, but it's attributed to him. Uh, the exercise of uh, happiness is the exercise of vital powers through lines of excellence in a life affording them scope. He has exercised his vital powers, right? Mm-hmm. He is—he's not just strong of arm and strong of um, will. He's also cunning, right? He tricks his opponent into fighting him and yeah, defeats yeah. him. Um, and I—I th- I would say that. That is actually the most important skill of a human is the the mind rather than the the arm. But he he does have a full life in a sense. He's had a long life, and he chooses his own end. Was he a happy man? Well, I yeah, I mean you could interpret it that way. I mean, I, I know, think so. I know uh, people that um, it doesn't sound very happy, but well, I think he was. I think he might have He's been happy too, that but it's I know over. People. I know people personally who, you know, are workaholics, I guess you'd call it, that that's what they do is their business. And they do it and they do it and they do it and they keep doing it and they do it. You know, I guess Steve Jobs was like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, he was working 
Uh, right. And he, he retired what a couple weeks before he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he didn't, he didn't even retire completely. He's still on the board. They mm-hmm. said, yeah. 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 I recall, um, hearing a story about Steve jobs where he called somebody on a Sunday and this guy was at church and the guy, um, you know, can't answer the phone in church. So he gets out of church, sees that it was Steve jobs and calls him back immediately and what was so important to Steve Jobs on a Sunday was the color of the O and the Google logo on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, he was, but it, it, to me, it's the same kind of thing. So I, I, I guess, you know, yeah, you can achieve happiness that way. But, you, you know, in a way, I guess you're never, you're never satisfied. I know satisfaction and happiness wouldn't be the same thing, but... um well, according to, to that definition, the exercise of vital powers through lines of excellence in a life affording them scope is you can't be judged happy until you've had a full life. Mm-hmm. If, if you, I think this is why we say, uh, it makes, explains why when a young person dies, we say it's a tragedy. But when an older person dies, it's not necessarily a tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs wasn't elderly, but he had a pretty full life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and true. so uh, he seemed to um, achieve the things he set his mind to, at least from an outside point of view. Um, I guess that that gave him enough chance to for us to look and say, oh, yeah, he he achieved what he wanted. His life is um, full of the exercise of his vital powers. Uh, he was therefore happy. Okay. I don't know. I, 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 these are the thoughts that I think about when I read this story. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I found the quote where he, he kind of sounds like he feels guilty. Okay. He goes, yeah. uh, as always, the deep shrinking fear tried to rise in me, fear and something more, something within me. Is it you, Bellamy? Mm-hmm. That says I did not really want to kill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cer- certainly, certainly um, there is, I mean, there's, there's lines in there. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not a coward, he says, but Early on, he he's talking about his training, mm-hmm. and and he says they they told us how natural it was to kill. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yes, uh, yes, it's so natural. It's really, really natural. Don't worry, it's natural. Just just keep going. I when, guess society's brainwashing him from an early age. Well, that's uh, start this life. Yeah, if it's when it's if it's not brainwashing, it's you know adopting a. I mean, I I I can't explain why the Spartans did what they did other than it was their culture, right? That was the thing that they did. Yeah. You, you didn't get the impression though, that this was like every male in this society, right? Uh, very select people. uh, It's, it's uh, something you're born into, right? He's born a hunter. It's like, you know, because it only takes place in central park and not everywhere. Well, we could assume that New Jersey has some other place. Of the males in the society are not going through this. Yes, it's only the rich, the people with mansions. <laughs> but you understand that the the what makes them rich is the heads, right? The the Something well, then they get money from their can't buy, right? That's, this is interesting. There's, there's no money in this mm-hmm. society, right? Yeah, but the only I'm just saying, currency I'm just saying is a head. That, that yeah, what they're yeah, maybe it's the richest people because. Uh, you know, if you're given everything you want, you really don't have a motivation. And then again, maybe not the opportunity to be happy. Whereas these folks have figured out a way, 
to continue that motivation. Yes, and that's where it goes back to that that preamble. Incentives change constantly, but one thing never does: the idea that they are permanent. You can't have us. You can't eliminate desire to get stuff, even if you gave everybody stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. People would still want to be famous, or um, you know, to a- achieve victory over their enemies, even when it's pointless. You know, I have more points than you. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, uh, it's where a lot of the video games is going now, is social networking uh, of, you know, your achievements and uh, badges and stuff. Like, okay, how is that? How is that? Ah, it spurs you on to further action. Well, it's kills. Yeah, exactly. Most kills badge and, you know, uh, unlock this and right it, it what we've managed to do is turn a um uh some in video games we've managed to turn uh something that was infinitely reproducible right ones and zeros and put restrictions on them so that you have to achieve those res- restrictions right and in a in a game normally back in the old days we we would uh that was the game right is is finding finding the mystery or, uh, you know, finding those tools to get the job done, and then the game's over. But in the new, the new games, like, I guess, World of Warcraft's the example, right? Uh, people are doing something called grinding, right? Where they just keep going, trying to get more equipment and more stuff, but none of it's real. Mm-hmm. And why are they doing all that? Because... That's what they do. There's no, there's no deeper explanation. Yeah. 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 Did you guys hear, I read a story that there's a place in China that actually just plays world of Warcraft. This is their job Yeah, to get stuff. Yeah. And then they sell them for yeah, real money gold farming. on eBay or whatever. Yeah. It's called gold farming. Yeah. Fascinating. I, I think Cory Doctorow has written stories about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. For, for the win. That's the novel uh, <laughs> that he wrote for that hmm. subject. And, we the thing is we don't live in a post scarcity environment in a way, um, but in another way we do, uh, and <clears throat> so you know right now there's uh, protests going on in in uh, cities around the world about uh, the state of the economy and the political situation, and I can see why the numbers aren't bigger and basically even though. A lot of people are out of work, and a lot of people uh, aren't living in ideal circumstances. I don't know anyone who is starving, mm-hmm. and I don't know anyone who is uh, dying. I mean, it might be the case that you guys do, but I don't know anyone who is dying of disease and in deep deprivation uh, because of that. Yep. Uh, people do die from diseases, but it's not a uh, uh, it's not stuff that is untreated. It's just stuff that's untreatable perhaps Mm -hmm. and so i i I think you know if you look at the story not as oh i mean he said it in the 21st century right written in the middle of the 20th century said it in the 21st century in in a way aren't we in this society because in a way because i mean money is not really that important compared to uh three or four hundred years ago if you didn't have money three or four hundred years ago you were uh you were not just um, starving to death. You would, 
you you were living in the gutter while you're starving to death. I guess, um, you know, there would be numerous examples of people who have everything they could ever possibly want. And Mm -hmm. what they're hunting is uh, friends on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, they're hunting innumerable things, right? Yeah, yeah. But they're they're not, uh, and even if they are, you know, you got to change my car every two years. Uh, that that's head hunting in a way, right? So mm-hmm. You got to keep up with the. Jo- this is the ultimate in keeping up with the Joneses. Surprising that he didn't actually use the name Jones for any of those. <laughs> <laughs> Drew Jonathan Hall and Good Ben Griswold, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it does apply. Because because we are living in a time of material uh, abundance. Well, there there is a comfortable middle class, but some people think that that's shrinking. Well, it is. It is. You know, people are making less money than they used to as a as a rule. But uh, that it's still the case that I don't know. Like maybe you guys do. I don't see people starving on the street. Do you? No, no, I don't either. And I. You know, when they compare, you know, this economic downturn to the Great Depression, I mean, it's still, we're still a long ways from that Great Depression. Yeah, I think, you know, we've achieved a kind of, as they've said in the story, you know, the great machines uh, are producing, you know, whatever we need. Mm -hmm. And the great machine is society. Um, Maybe it's China (laughs) (laughs) producing a lot of the material goods that we want or Mexico growing the food or what have you. We have all the high fructose corn syrup we need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it is sugar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is sugar. But yeah, I think this is a, it's a story to ask questions with, not to uh, give great answers to. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.